welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And it is a new dawn. It is a new day. Joe Biden is our president-elect and Kamala Harris is our vice president-elect, you guys. It's oh my so God. exciting. Yes. <laughs> it is clear the Trump administration is going to make sure that the road to Inauguration Day isn't smooth, but at least we can all take a moment to collectively exhale, right? Are we exhaling? Are we shouting from the ceilings? <laughs> what, are, what are we doing? Can I say that this weekend I was sitting at my desk when I was on a call when it was being announced and my husband was yelling so loud that the neighbors thought it was me yelling. And so literally the whole neighborhood was alerted to the fact that they needed to run to their televisions based on my husband's very high-pitched squealing. So then, so our neighbor Mo, like, like literally drove up the entire neighborhood honking and the kids were running around and it was just a jubilant celebration during COVID at a distance. I think I was so stressed out leading into it that I didn't really recognize how wound up and how worked up. And apparently in the middle of the night on Friday night, I woke up and I said, did Allegheny County come in yet? And then went right back to sleep and have no recollection of ever doing that. And it's just, that's how invested we are in this process and this is not a process that we have seen play out um, over the past couple of election cycles say for um, Bush v. Gore but it was so so joyous and I felt I think as a country maybe there's a collective sigh of relief that maybe this is over but what an incredible day Saturday was especially in downtown Chicago oh in LA too I mean just looking at the streets all over the country and even all over the world but you know my family called me like one by one the call started coming in and it really did feel like this momentous occasion where it's like my mom was like, I just I wanted to call you first. And and I don't know, I don't come from a very political family. And so that's actually very unique for it to feel so profound like that. But it, it was it was a beautiful moment. I mean, um, even Paris was ringing their church bells. It was really lovely to see. And there was somebody who was on the golf course when he found out. <laughs> that's that's one way to celebrate. And, uh, President Trump, who, of course, went after President Obama for golfing at any chance he could, was on the golf course when it was called. Oh, my God. You well, guys. apparently he wasn't the only one kind of asleep at the wheel, because can we talk about the Four Seasons Total Landscaping yes. Company versus the Four Seasons? What a <gasps> mistake. By, but that the campaign leaned into it, that they didn't say, OK, there's a correction. This was the wrong location. It should be up the street at the Four Seasons. They just went. And what is it? It's between a crematorium and a porn shop? <laughs> yes. I mean, you okay, can't so write this stuff. You guys, I know, like, OK, for number one, having done advance, it's like, why would you ever announce something without having the location nailed down? Because this is the incompetence we've had in our government. But I know a lot of people are thinking that Rudy, you know, that this was a mistake. I actually think Rudy was at the porn shop next door and like <laughs> found out and was like, oh, crap, I got to make an announcement. Got to keep know? it close. <laughs> so he came outside and decided to bloviate with his, you know, uh, BS. But like, truly, he's like when he's yelling, you know, do you think you can fool us and the guy literally was just fooled like on um borat borat yes <laughs> like, yes we do think you can be fooled and you borat. clearly were <laughs> 
the optics of it when they pull out from the press conference, because when they're zoomed in all the care cameras, you could see the Trump signs and, and everything. And it looks like they're anywhere in, in a hotel ballroom or something. But when you see the pulled out photos that they're actually like probably stepping on broken glass in a parking lot, it really was a metaphor for how far things have gone from where they started, right? On today's episode, we're joined by actress, producer, director, and activist Eva Longoria, who in addition to discussing the Latino vote and where we go from here, is going to address some of her recent comments on who the, quote, real heroines of the 2020 election are. But first, it's important that we talk about the transition moment, because I know that might be something that a lot of folks aren't that excited or interested in talking about, but it actually has a huge bearing on how strong the Biden administration is able to start off. And so this is something that is interesting, and we're seeing it play out in the press. But what is probably very frustrating for the transition team is that the GSA administrator, Emily Murphy, hasn't formally issued a letter of ascertainment, which means that she hasn't formally recognized the president-elect. And this means that the transition team doesn't have access to a lot of things that a normal transition would have. And I think a lot about the day after the election, because the day after President Barack Obama was elected, I was on a 6 a.m. flight out to D.C. um, with a couple of members of my team, and we went directly from the airport with our suitcases to the transition office. There was a transition office in Chicago and there was one in DC and these were at federal buildings. And right now, the $6.3 million needed for transition purposes to help with travel, the office spaces that are required for secure conversations, the ability to start the background check process for the new cabinet members, especially for the national security team, and all of those resources that other president-elects have had, the Biden team doesn't have access to. And right now, we're in such a vulnerable position because of that. This team is not able to start building what it takes for the next 75 days to get ready to take office, to get ready to govern. We are at a situation where classified information isn't being shared with the Biden team. So it makes us so much vulnerable from a national security perspective on a global scale for attacks from our enemies and from our adversaries. And especially after not only them not having access to this, he's fired his secretary of defense. And you have to think about where does this leave us? Yeah. Well, and Darian, you have such an interesting perspective because you have served in the military overseas in combat roles. And then you were one of the first people who actually got on that plane to handle that transition the last time around. And I think you're so right that in the 9-11 Commission report, they actually blame the delayed transition on some of the lack of planning that would have put us into a safe and secure environment for George W. Bush's first term. And so we're in this situation where because President Trump refuses to concede, even though Hillary Clinton had the graciousness to concede with the same numbers. We are going to put our countries at a more vulnerable position. Joe Biden was just asked about it at a press conference, and he said, you know, he's not concerned because, unfortunately, the Biden team, again, always prepared, had actually already been preparing for this exact scenario where Donald Trump wouldn't concede. But what you raised right then 
was just the background checks. You guys remember how long it took for all of us to do our background checks? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I share with folks how long that was, they're in shock because, I mean, I had top secret security clearance and it took probably about eight to nine months. Yep. And we started it, you know, I, I, I started on day one with you guys in the White House right after inauguration. And they started it before that. And it, I mean, it was well into the, the first year. And when you think about the fact that folks need to be able to handle this national security information, um, top secret information. And so it, it is, it does have huge consequences. And, but obviously the Biden team knew that they had to start dealing with a transition in a lot of ways. And COVID is yeah. a big one. Like you can't wait until they say, mother, may I, can I start working on COVID? Like this right. is something that we can't miss a beat. So I actually felt a lot better knowing that the Biden transition team unveiled a COVID task force already. And so at the very least, you know, they're able to start working on that. And like you you feel there's a, already a stabilizing influence of the Biden team. Now, can we get that stabilizing feeling across the board on all issues? That would be ideal. Stabilizing while we've got the, you know, Trump administration saying they're preparing for a Trump transition, which is a joke, while they're firing the defense secretary via tweet, which is dangerous. It's like, oh, my God, what worlds are we living in? And that's exactly right. And I really appreciated that the vice president put out Vice President, now President-elect, excuse me. Say it again. (laughs) Say it again. That he put out a request to all Americans to wear masks and to be considerate of one another. And that's something that we have not, again, talking about compassion and empathy and real leadership, asking Americans to look out for one another and thinking of all Americans when he says he's not just, you know, a president for the Americans who voted for him. He's a president for all Americans. This is what real leadership looks like. This is what it feels like this is what it should feel like that they put out a statement on the meeting of these task force this is what it should feel like to have real people real leaders in government yeah well and then we hear about this covid vaccine from pfizer that apparently is looking very good what was it at 90 percent? 90 percent. i know so uh, I mean, uh, of course, there's conspiracy that, oh, of course, this comes out right after, you know, Biden is elected. But I felt nothing but just relief. Obviously, I'm not Pollyanna about the fact that we still have a long roads to go to take care of COVID. But knowing that we're starting to see these pieces come together, because obviously, if this vaccine is effective and it's looking so good, there's going to need to be a coordinated rollout of how this is distributed throughout the country. We talked about this before, if we felt comfortable taking the vaccine ourselves under a Trump administration versus a Biden administration. And, you know, even in California here, uh, Governor Newsom was saying that we're going to have our own way of reviewing um, whether or not we feel that it's safe enough to take the vaccine. But again, now that we're under a Biden transition, it does feel like all of this is is going to be coordinated in a way that is efficient, but also safe. Well, I was reassured both that the vaccine is on the horizon, which, of course, you know, the private sector innovates, and I'm thrilled that they innovated. 
But you're reassured that you know that there's going to be oversight in the public sector in terms of distribution, because the testing that they rolled out under the Trump administration was really a disaster. Like the te- the rapid tests that were given to some places actually put people in a more vulnerable position, because if they had a false negative or a false positive, they could be wrongly put in categories. Let's say they're at a nursing home and then be more vulnerable to COVID. And so, you know, we we absolutely need at this critical job juncture, that oversight capability, instead of just the blessings of someone who's going to say, yes, make money, money, money. Yes, let's send it out. Because that's the truth of the COVID test. And I'm sure you guys have seen it. If you want to get a rapid test in California right now, because there, you know, there weren't enough for all of our population, you ended up having to pay if you wanted to get it in any decent amount of time, which is not fair. No, and it's not, not safe. Not at all. Not no. at all. But as we can tell, like health is something that has always been the access to it is has to do with how much money you have, the color of your skin. Let's let's keep it real here, which is obviously something that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with right away, which is Obamacare, what's going on in the Supreme Court. So, I mean, that that's a whole nother conversation. But before we get to that, let's talk about Georgia. All right. So the balance of power and whether the Democrats will have enough power to be able to implement change actually lies in Georgia's hands. Because right now, two Democratic Senate candidates got themselves within the margin of error for a runoff. That's Democrat Senate candidate John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. They are going up against two Republicans who have actually both been accused of insider trading. And if you remember, Kelly Loeffler was very publicly shamed for the insider trading. Basically, she found out that coronavirus is going to be bad, and she dumped all her stocks. It's not okay, but the the way that this is going to unfold is we don't have presidential names on the ballot, so it depends on the motivation of both sides to get to the polls. It's a lot harder for candidates to convince voters to turn out for elections that, you know, don't have the president on the ballot, but This could not be more important. I mean, the outcome of these contests are going to either swing the majority to Democrats or keep things the way they are, which we all know how that looks, right? This is going to play out two weeks before inauguration. So this is scheduled to January 5th, and voters have to be registered to participate by December 7th. None of us are in Georgia personally, but if anyone's listening here, but also if people want to make calls or or donate, I mean, this is the time right now. We're already in it and it could not be more important. And these elections really matter. You're already seeing a contentious race where both of the Republican candidates have called on their secretary of state, who is also a Republican, to resign. There's going to be a tremendous amount of funding going into these states for ads. And it's just going to be important for people to stay focused, to keep their foot on the gas. We cannot stop because Joe Biden was elected. He needs to be supported by a Senate that helps move legislation through. And so the only way to do that is to make Georgia blue. Yes, if we're able to do that, We're literally going to give President Biden the power to carry out his policy agenda, to push through nominations and so on. So we in order to do all the things that we've been fighting so hard to do, this is such a critical piece of the equation. 
And I think another critical piece of the equation as we talk about this is how we have to focus on black women in this election, but especially in Georgia. We know that black women are the ones who got things done. They are the people who are responsible for showing up, for voting, for organizing, for sharing credit for the work that they are doing. This is not something that has been kept you know, close hold. They have shared in their joy and in their experience and in their struggle and making for sure years. that people for yeah. years, for years of fighting for this moment. And can yeah. we give a huge hat tip to Stacey Abrams? Not only Stacey Abrams and the 800,000 voters she registered to Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, the New Georgia Project, Deborah Scott, Tamika Adkins, Helen Butler, and the 91% of black women who showed up and voted for Joe Biden. No, you're right. And like truly, the credit all too often is not given to those who have worked so hard to make it happen. And Stacey Abrams and the coalition that she built has really put Georgia in play, which is amazing. But it's made this state really matter. And I hope that people who fought that good fight in Georgia are proud and motivated and energized and they deserve seats at the table a hundred percent the elephant of the in the room is that white women voted for donald trump and thought that this guy who has said awful things about people of color about women about every category that they still sided with donald trump I think there's a lot of reckoning that we have to do there. We do not shy away from uncomfortable conversations on this podcast. And that's one of the reasons why we're you know, excited to have our next guest, who is Eva Longoria, because not only can she speak to the Latino perspective, Latino vote, and help us kind of piece together how some things didn't go in the way that we expected, especially, especially in polling, but also she had a comment that became very controversial on MSNBC this past week, where she talked about who the quote real heroines were of the election so let's hear from her i know that she has a lot to say and and wants to clarify some of what she said and let's open up this conversation that's so important we are joined today by actress producer director and activist eva longoria welcome to pot is a woman eva thank you for having me Looking at voter turnout in Arizona and other key states, the contributions of the Latino community to this election were significant. But I do want to ask you about a comment you made on MSNBC recently that Latinas are the, quote, real heroines of the election, which many took to be dismissive towards black women. Can you clarify what you meant by that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me on, first of all. And I, I definitely want to start off by not defending myself and saying I'm absolutely sorry. I uh, did misspeak. That it wasn't my intention, but that was my action. And I and I really recognized the harm I caused. And that were you know, I know words matter. I know this and I know better and I take full responsibility. Um, so when I got that barrage of of backlash, I was like, yep, you're right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing the work to repair the harm. Uh, you know, I, I uh, again, you know, I wasn't that it wasn't my I was trying to say Latinas, for, meaning women from the Latino community, because men did not show up like women did. Uh, but I didn't say that. And that's not how it come, came across, because that's not what I said. And so, uh, you know, I want to make sure that we that I use this opportunity to to 
use it for solidarity building, like deep solidarity that's rooted in deep conversations. And this is what an uncomfortable moment looks like. And I'm gonna sit in it and, and we can only show up to the moment to, to do better and be better. Um, but it really, oh, it, it stabbed my heart to know that I contributed to the pain uh, that black women feel every day. Um, you know, there's a collective exhaustion of being erased and I get that and I should not have erased them in this moment. That's not, that's exactly the opposite of what uh, I wanted to do and exactly the opposite of what, what I did. And, uh, you know, I'm the first to say we stand on the shoulders of black, black women uh, in regards to civic participation. They've always shown up. They always do it right. They always have a grassroots organization and they always have unity. And it's a model that I, I wish we, we aspire to. And I think, I should appropriate. I should have appropriately, appropriately honored the work, and I said "but" at the end of the sentence. I, I don't know why, but there's no "but." It's like that's it. We stand on the shoulders of black women. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just you know, it's not the totality of who I am, obviously, but um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue to to do better, and I recognize that harm. Uh, and I want to repair that harm because it was, oh, I, I, I heard it back and I heard it too. So they, they're, nobody's crazy. Well, you know, I think that this is a really good teaching moment. And as we're talking about coalition building and so much work that's at hand, and we've seen, especially in this election cycle, so many instances of women being the backbone of our democracy and especially black women. And our vice president put that, our vice president-elect, excuse me, put that so beautifully. And so yeah. I'm thinking now, as we look at what has taken place, how do we continue to build a multiracial, diverse coalition yeah. that champions women's issues from healthcare to income yeah. equality to racial justice? And how can you then use your platform now that you are in the spotlight to uplift women mm -hmm. of color, Latinas, black women? How do we start talking about these issues Right. Well, I will say, you know, even with this small mo moment that I had, you know, it's a mistake I made. It's not the mistake I am. And I think conflict and debate are not bad things. These are conversations we need to have. We need to talk about um, and not just in this public forum at our dinner tables. Right. Like that's where it matters. Uh, I'm grateful for everybody who shared their their feelings with me and, and I'm listening and I'm learning. And I think that's the model. That's the model. The, there's a collective hurt that we have to explore. And I think sometimes that pain is what's preventing those coalitions, you know, and there, there's, there's been historically a lot of anti-Black sentiment in the Latino community. And I don't want to contribute to it. And I did. And I, and I, again, I apologize for that, but I think that's how you move forward of creating, you know, a government and a, and a world, uh, a government that looks like our world, a works workplaces that look like our world uh, that we live in. And Kamala's part of that, you know, being a woman and, and uh, a woman of color, it brought tears to my eyes and, and uh, joy to my heart because we're women on our special interest group. <laughs> we're yeah. more than half yeah. the population of this country. You know, I know yeah. she's the first, but, but she's not going to be the last. I'm sure she's going to make sure she's not the last and she's going to defy the odds because that's what women do. You know, you put low expectations on us and we exceed them. And thank you for being so honest about that and especially the tensions in communities of color, because I think that's the point is that we don't talk about these things enough. And like when we've seen how divided this country was in this election and we're all having this wonderful moment of, of solidarity, but all these problems didn't go away. 
And so we have to keep having these conversations, be honest. And, you know, I really appreciate you taking ownership of what you said and and being willing to have this be a teachable moment for all of us. Well, and I think if anything we've learned from, from the horrible rhetoric of the last four years is words matter. And so I can't just go, oh, guys, I'm sorry you took it that way. That's no, I'm sorry Mm -hmm. I said it. I'm sorry I said it. Words matter. And and like I said, I should know better. But I do think that the intersectionality of race and identity, so many people do uh, feel left out, specifically for Afro-Latinas, you know, where they don't sometimes feel like they belong in the Black community and they don't feel like they belong in the Latino community and they straddle that hyphen. And that's hard. I get it. I, I, I get it as a Mexican American because I'm a hundred percent Mexican and I'm a hundred percent American. So anytime yes. you, you are many identities, you know, it creates conflict um, and overlap, but it, it also creates unity because I do feel a part of this community and I feel a part of that community. And I think we are much more similar than that, which we are different. Well, and you raise a good point because Joe Biden ran on the idea that he wanted to unify America. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of us were part of the administration and we saw the resistance in the Republican Party. And, you know, I was raised by conservatives like my family was conservative. Not all of them still are, but I definitely have some family members who voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a really hard thing to unify America because some people still believe believe that Donald Trump defended their right to say things, some of them awful and intolerant, right? But how are we going to get to the point where we start listening? And I mean that as much about me to my brother who feels like I don't listen to him. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a hard uphill battle. It is a hard uphill battle. But the fact is, you know, we had historic voter turnout. Mm-hmm. because of what we want to see reflected in our government. Uh, you know, and that's a positive sign to the health of our democracy. When you make voting more convenient, whether it's mail-in or more drop-off places or more polling places, it opens up democracy for all Americans. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like Biden ran a campaign for the working class Americans. He had plan, he has plans, he has structure, he has teams, he has scientists, he has you know, everything on his side. And Donald Trump has ran a war against truth, right? So you have, you know, you have a leader and a liar. And I think, you know, people want truth. And I think that's where we begin is a shared vision of what is truth. And you can have an opinion on that. And we can disagree about the opinion, but we cannot disagree on what is true. Yeah. Well, and anyone who thinks that a New York penthouse, you know, uh, dweller is going to protect working class Americans, it's silly. And we've got to change that and really got, get, get back to the issues. Yeah. Well, and talking about truth, we saw our own community as Latinas be kind of divided on what the truth was in certain states. So I want to talk about that for a second, because I'm always so tired of hearing people do the monolith thing. And I feel like calling out the monolith thing is as tired as saying it at this point. We all know Cubans in Miami are very different from Puerto Ricans or Orlando from Mexicans and California yeah. and so on. But mm-hmm. we keep telling folks, don't talk to us like a monolith. But I feels like maybe we need to be a little more specific here. So like, what yeah. do you see as what campaigns, what candidates, what organizations need to start doing and paying attention and messaging to Latinos in order to really meet us where we are? Well, I think, you know, the first step is having your campaign look like America. 
And that's what Biden did. He had 10 Latino state directors. They they weren't Latino state directors. They were state directors who were Latino. They that were happened in charge to be of Latino. The, of, yes, they happened to be Latino. And when you do that, you have a seat at the table and somebody can tell you, look, you know, people in this community, these are their issues. And, you know, that's you know, the issues in Arizona were very different than the issues in Florida. And and as the issues in Pennsylvania, where there's a growing Latino population. So we're I mean, that's the one thing that this election did prove is that the Latino community is not a monolith. We saw that. Um, and it's an electorate that is only going to get bigger. The Latino community is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the the whole point of me doing press where I, I misspoke was because of this dangerous narrative that Trump's did well with Latinos. He did not. He did well yeah. in one county, in one state, with one ethnicity uh, <laughs> uh, among Latinos. But because Florida was the first race that came in, it was the first story out of the gate, you know. And so one of the early states that called it that night. And so, you know, Biden yeah. got 70 percent of the Latino vote nationwide. He got 70, 75, 80 percent in certain counties in Arizona and certain counties in Texas. Texas, for the first time, we were talking about going blue and as a Texan, I was like, wow, like we were finally in a conversation. Uh, and that was because of, you know, heavy Latino precincts. And so I think that, you know, we all know that demography is not destiny. And so we, we've got to keep doing the work. We cannot sit back and rest on, on our laurels and, and go, oh, thank God Biden's in. We're done. We've, we've got the runoffs in yes. Georgia we've got to still work on. Yes. We've got yes. midterms coming up. I mean. It's a lot. Well, that's the thing, you know, about, you know, staying present and being in the community. That's something that they were saying that Trump's campaign did very well at Miami is that they did not go away. They were there over those four years. And so, you know, a lot of times folks show up for communities of color on election year, but not so much in between. You know, how important yeah. is it that we keep engaging yeah. with the community on our issues. Like, let's talk about all the issues on the table that Latinos yeah. really want to see in this next administration, but yeah. over the next four years, right? Not just on election yeah. years. That's what has to happen is constant outreach to our community, not knocking on our door two months before an election saying, your vote matters, your vote matters. We want to know our lives matter. Our lives yeah. continue on after general elections. And so, uh, uh, the other, I think, myth is that their Latino issues are are different. The Latino issues are the same thing as American issues: the economy, mm -hmm. access to good healthcare, access to good education, climate change, uh, and so I think also treating us as a single issue group. Uh, that it's we all we care about is immigration. Immigration didn't play a factor in Florida because they don't have a large Mexican American community as does Arizona or Texas. Where I will say that's where ten years of grassroots organizing in Arizona is what kept, what flipped Arizona, the anger towards mm -hmm. SB 1070 10 years ago, yes. and the anger to children in cages. Uh, it was moms there going, no, 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 no. And that, that issue was really big because that's a border state where it wasn't as big in Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, concept. It is like the idea of us blanket narrative to every group. It just doesn't work. We've got to get more specific. But the American dream 
is, you know, something that we need to preserve for all communities across America, right? And that's out of reach for too many Americans right now because Donald Trump in his penthouse ways has made it, you know, possible for only those who are wealthy and funded to bring their human capital to the table the whole way. You know, as we are going through this process of finding new hope, and I think that that's sort of what we started in this conversation on, is the hope that, you know, Kamala and President-elect Biden bring to this. There's so much to look forward to next year. And one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is we recently had your friend Natalie Portman on the podcast, and we talked about supporting women and in doing so, you brought together a really phenomenal group of women, including Serena Williams and America Ferreira, to build a soccer team. Mm -hmm. What drove Mm -hmm. your decision to do that? Natalie, it was, uh, that was all Natalie. Uh, You know, how all that started was actually through Time's Up. Time's Up, when Harvey, the Harvey Weinstein scandal happened, a lot of us got together and we go, how do we turn a sex scandal into a movement? Because this isn't an isolated incident and it's not an isolated industry. It doesn't just happen to us. It happens to women everywhere. Sexual harassment in the workplace is a big problem. And so when we launched Time's Up, we said, you know, Time's Up on the imbalance of power. And in any industry, hotel worker, farm worker, restaurant worker, fast food workers, you know, uh, not for, not just Hollywood. And, um, you know, that's what I think made Time's Up so successful was calling it, calling it out and exposing it. And what also it did was create this sisterhood. We immediately all bonded together and put us in rooms that normally wouldn't I wouldn't be in. I would never have met Natalie Portman how, if it wasn't for Time's Up and, and really gotten to know her and fight with her with these things. And at one of these gatherings, uh, Abby Wambach was speaking about the inequality in sports for women. And Natalie just hung on to that and was like, what? What do you mean? If you're a professional athlete, you should be able to make a living as a woman just as a man does. And women can't make a living off of it. They have to have another job. They kind of do it on the side. And, uh, and so that was, I guess, her motivation to create, you know, a female investment group that could fund a soccer team. And we did it. She called me. I was like, done, in, let's do it. And, uh, and it's really amazing the message it sent more than, than the investment. It was the message it sends and, and to message it sends to little girls. So what's the message now as we close on sisterhood? And we're all kind of in this moment where we're, we're talking about where do we go from here together? What, what do you say? I say it's, it's not about leaning in. You know, that's a big thing, leaning in. It's about reaching back. And so I, I do think if we go talking back to like the election, going back to election, if you see, oh, you know, uh, Biden lost Florida because of whatever, it goes, no, Biden lost Florida because of white vote. You know, oh, he, he, you know, narrowly won out over here. Yeah, but that was because there's a lot of white people still that we have to change their mind. There's a lot of there's a lot of retirees who, you know, are making a lot of money who didn't want their taxes to change. And it's, you know, a selfish and short sighted. I mean, my my grandmother was among them. I called her on Election Day. Election Day was her birthday. She didn't Uh. take my call. (laughs) (laughs) But she undoubtedly (sighs) voted for Trump. You know, I have made the appeal like what is it going to take? And we had a really interesting podcast with Rosario Marin, who was Mm -hmm. a Republican for years, who basically said it took him making fun of, you know, people with disabilities and her son has a disability. And it's, you know, this is, 
enough is enough, right? It's like, come on, can we have some humanity towards one another? Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, but you, and you would assume that naturally comes from women, right? Like, like yeah. the, when the kids were being separated from their mother's arms at the border, I thought, here's a nonpartisan issue. This, yeah. this, this is, this is about life and death and motherhood. And like having your child taken out of your arms and put in a cage two feet away from you crying and you can't hold and console them. Wh who can imagine that? What mother can imagine that and be okay with it? And apparently a lot. <laughs> well, and apparently a it's, lot. It's so interesting because, you know, my grandmother has always been like first to the table to fund education and things like that. And she would say, oh, no, she just wants the private sector to do it. Well, no, like I want to yeah. have these conversations. It is, Eva, like that. that's such a good point because we've got to bring people along on this journey. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I ha I will say, you know, I've went against my family back at Gore v. Bush. Mm -hmm. And since then, I brought a lot more of them this time than I have previously, but it is an uphill battle. <laughs> I'm sure. We're going to fight this uphill battle together, right? Eva? And we have it to is. do it. We have to do it together. That's the only way. That's why, going back to how we started this, I'm sincere with my apology because we need a black and brown alliance. And I do not want to cause pain to any black woman. I want to lift them up. And I want to, I want to be, a, I want to be held accountable. If I can make that mistake, me who's woke and aware, imagine the people who aren't this way and who do it daily, these microaggressions daily to black women. And I contributed to that and we can't do that. And we have to be held accountable. And like I said, that's how we, that's how we become better. We got to do better. A hundred percent. Eva, thank you for being so candid and open you, with us like this today. Thanks. And thank you for joining us. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. I'm glad that Eva came on the show. And I appreciate that she took the time to clarify her statements. We are in a world right now, and especially given what has transpired over the past four years or so where we are being pitted against one another and we have created a sort of rhetoric that makes you taking credit for an accomplishment be a dig on someone else. And as women, we so often get into a caddy environment where we don't support each other and we don't uplift each other. and. I want to believe, again, that this is a really teachable moment, that we all take the time to sit back and say, how am I using my unconscious bias, using, you know, words, words matter so much, we've learned that. How am I using my actions to uplift the women around me? And unfortunately, that did not come across in the MSNBC episode. And so I'm glad that we have taken the time to unpack that a little bit. I think one of the most beautiful things about this past protests and that are still going on actually is when you saw this black and brown unity and folks holding hands across issues because that is what's making this moment and this coalition of folks so powerful. And, you know, there, of course, there's a history of, you know, these tensions, you know, especially in Los Angeles where I am, but, you know, we're, we're stronger together and we're past that moment 
of folks trying to divide us. And so we have to also be careful and call ourselves out. And I, I appreciate her coming on as well, Darren, because, you know, I think this was the first time she's actually given an interview on the issue, if not one of the first. But it's difficult to wade into this, but we have to talk about it. Because if we start now attacking each other and trying to take credit from each other, then we're not going to be able to get everything done that we need to in this next administration. Well, and I think the the flaw that I see some people, some white people think is it's black and brown unity means not unity with me. And that's not true. Like, be part of the movement for an inclusive America. Like, an inclusive America is representative of all backgrounds. And I think, you know, I'm glad that we talked about Florida because it's representative of part of the problem. Why are we talking about Cubans and Latinos not delivering enough percentage of the vote instead of talking about the overwhelming number of white Americans who voted for Donald Trump knowing all of these flaws? Like, they were willing to decide that these awful things that he's saying are not awful enough that they want to pay taxes. So they're going to vote for this awful candidate. And that is, to me, so dangerous and so frustrating and so personal because many of them were my family members. I mean, I had a white grandma vote for Trump in Florida. I'm sure she did. She didn't have to tell me. I had a white aunt in Georgia who voted for Biden. And so, you know, like we categorizing people in one race and expecting what they're going to do, I think, is a disservice to equality. But getting to the conversations that need to be had with how do we elevate all voices? And what I loved what she said is the last thing I wanted to do was not give credit to black women or, you know, to take their voices away because that has been done for generations and that cannot be done anymore. Shame on any of us. Like Stacey Abrams has fought this fight and she deserves a seat at the table. She deserves a cabinet position. She deserves whatever she wants because she is qualified. And I think that's a beautiful transition because our POTUS of the week this week goes to Stacey Abrams. Well-deserved. Very well-deserved. And our shout out this week goes to our nation's veterans. We know that our country is built on the military service of so many men and women. And on Veterans Day, as a veteran myself, and coming from a very long line of military service members, I just want to say thank you to my fellow service members and veterans. We honor you and your service and sacrifice for our country. Thank you, Darian. Yeah, thank truly. you for your service. Yeah, thank Darian, you. Darian, we owe uh, so much gratitude to you for everything. But uh, yes, thank you for your service. Well, this is a conversation that is obviously going to continue. And a lot of the conversations we're going to be having over the next couple months, you know, it's they're not going to be easy, but we are committed to having them and we want to have them with you guys. So if you haven't yet hit subscribe, hit subscribe and you'll be able to get Pod as a Woman download automatically into your inbox. And in the meantime, let's all just look at a photo of our next vice president-elect Kamala Harris when we're having those down moments and remember that progress is happening in this country and we are moving forward. See you guys next week.